is not only death or recovery. What are the side effects that people are left with? This month on Ebb and Flow, we discuss the race for a coronavirus vaccine. We'll ask who is behind this urgent task, how they're progressing, if there may be more than one vaccine, and if so, how you'd know which to take. We'll also discuss the development and availability of various COVID-19 treatments, and we'll consider the long-term effects of this mysterious virus that doctors do not yet fully understand. My guest here to discuss these daunting topics is Dr. Rain Sorrell, a pioneer in developing treatments for some of the most challenging diseases whose fascinating story brought him from Soviet-occupied Estonia to a farm in Iowa to Johns Hopkins and ultimately to the Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University. Along the way, Dr. Sorrell became the first physician to use bone marrow transplantation in the treatment of AIDS-related ailments and became known and celebrated for thinking outside of the traditional paradigms of medicine. On behalf of UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Rain, welcome and thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you, Paul. Enjoy uh, talking with you. Well, I think it's going to be a great conversation, much to discuss. We are going to touch on, obviously, the coronavirus vaccine and other related topics today. But before we do that, I'd like to chat about something a bit more upbeat, and namely, that is your family's experience with the American dream. I'm referring to the story of your family coming to the U.S. and the path you took to enormous success and influence. The story starts, I believe, in Soviet-occupied Estonia, can you take it from there? In 1939, Hitler and Stalin agreed on a, a non-aggression pact, which was followed by Hitler's invasion of Poland. In that pact, the three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, were basically ceded to the Soviets. So the Soviets came in and took over the country at that point. Many of the stories there are just uh, horrific about how they intimidated the population. Well, in any case, I was born in 1943. In 1944, the Soviets uh, were on the attack against the Germans, pushing them back to their homeland. That was a time for my family to escape, go behind enemy lines, and to make a long story short, we end up in the northern sector of Germany, which was the British occupation zone. Hmm. We were very fortunate. Uh, my father spoke five separate languages. So he was hired by the British military to work with them with a refugee situation. Hmm. Now, he expressed a great desire to come to America. He had two brothers, both of whom uh, went to Australia, which had fairly open immigration laws. My mother had a brother who went to Canada. My father found out that getting into the States would be very, very difficult because of the immigration laws that were passed in the 1920s that limited the number of immigrants from European and other countries to America. The savior in all of this was the Lutheran Church. Hmm. Virtually 90-plus percent of people in Estonia were Lutherans, or are or were. And they worked with the government, and they said, basically, we'd like to bring people to America and the State Department agreed if they could find them a job, they would be allowed to immigrate. So we were sponsored by a farmer in Iowa. <laughs> My father had a law degree, spoke multiple languages, 
and he was hired basically as a tenant farmer. Wow. Uh, after 10 months, this old Norwegian fellow called him and he said, you're too smart to be doing this. He says, I'm going to give you a loan, which was $1,000 without interest, to go to the, the big city, Ames, Iowa, that's 30000 and find a job. <laughs> well, we went to Ames. My father ended up working with a company that made uh, water filters and purifiers for cities and towns around America. He was a CFO. The company was bought up later on by a conglomerate. We thrived. I went to school in a, at a small school in Iowa, Grinnell College, mm-hmm. and then went uh, from there to Johns Hopkins, uh, where I got my MD degree. That's an amazing story, and we'll, and we'll pick up where you went from there. And, I, and I, I suppose we should say that somewhere in there you met my partner, Tom Lips, and I believe that had something to do with Harvard Medical School, uh, someone you knew there, right? Yeah, I met Tom somewhat later on after a tour of duty in the public health service during the Vietnam War at the NIH in Bethesda, and after uh, my fellowship and joined the faculty with another friend of Tom's at Johns Hopkins uh, um, University. Uh, that's how I got to know Tom. Oh, interesting. Well, we, we are happy that you did and happy that ultimately that brought you here to our podcast conversation today. And I wonder if we can pick up where that amazing story ultimately left you, which was within the Emory University medical system. And that is where you have worked most recently and where you're still involved, I know. So I wonder if you could tell us how has COVID-19 impacted the work and the people in that setting? Well, let me just uh, not only talk about the medical, the, the medical community at large. When the, the uh, storm hit us in March, late February and March, basically we had to take care of some extraordinarily ill people who were afflicted uh, with the coronavirus. That meant that routine appointments were canceled, routine surgeries were canceled because of the, uh, the efforts on the part of our medical staff to care for these desperately ill people who had the coronavirus, a disease we didn't know much about. But the fiscal implications for it, uh, were significant for us in terms of our ability to generate the resources we need to um, ensure that we could keep operating uh, at a very efficient level. It also meant that we had to cut back on what we call routine surgeries, which I don't believe are routine. We experienced a drop in surgical volumes that uh, went about 60% in March and April. That meant people who needed new knees, new hips, which is an electric procedure, were unable to have their operations performed during that period of time. Hmm. In addition, we had to set up safe, what we call clean areas, and areas where there were patients with coronavirus. That meant at that time, and even today, that if you go in to the hospital for, uh, let's say, a routine IF-1 or for a, a routine endoscopy, like a colonoscopy, right. you are the only one allowed in. There is no one else allowed in with you. If you're admitted uh, to the hospital, even if you don't have COVID, you cannot have visitors. It's a situation that has really profoundly changed the way we interact with patients, the rapidity with which we can take care of routine things, and it's had a very, very significant impact, not only at Emory, but at every other major hospital system in America. I can only imagine, and, and the 
the, the sort of heartbreaking stories you hear for the more critical cases of people suffering and in some cases dying without their families around them. But you don't often hear about the more routine surgeries where there too, a, a family member being with you is, is important and, and obviously wasn't possible. You know, my wife had a knee replacement several years ago. And it, the reason she had it was because of an injury. But you, you don't do it until you really experience debilitating discomfort or inability to move. So while it's called an elective procedure, people who elect to have these procedures, like hips, knees, I'm using that as one example, right. are really not elected in the true sense of the word. Uh, because that... they're extremely disabled by their underlying condition. Right. Well, it's very interesting and, and yet another casualty of, of this pandemic. But Rain, I'd, I'd like to, to switch over to the conversation around a vaccine to this disease. And, you know, the speed of the vaccine development has been, I guess everyone would say, unprecedented. And with that comes some very sort of strong public expectations as to when this vaccine would be available. Can you talk more about the overall efforts to come up with a vaccine, the pace of the work, and the realities of delivery? Yeah. First of all, this is an extraordinary effort. We knew the sequence of the virus. I mean, the Chinese actually published the sequence of the current coronavirus. We confirmed that. And once you know the structure, you can begin to develop strategies and approaches to try, one, to treat it, and secondly, to develop a vaccine to prevent the disease. So currently, there are several uh, large clinical phase three studies using basically three or four different approaches to trying to manufacture immunity against this current coronavirus. These are ongoing at the present time. They're ongoing in America. They're ongoing in Europe. They're ongoing in Africa. They're ongoing in Asia. And the results, I believe, uh, will be available, but the results will not be uh, available next week, uh, but they will be available. Then we'll have a chance to look at, to see which of the different vaccines provide the best possible uh, sort of immunity against this virus. Let me ask you this, you know, everyone's rushing toward a vaccine. Have vaccines been prematurely delivered in the past? I think the classic example of this is 1976. In early 1976, there was an outbreak at an armed forces base of a new type of flu. And when that flu was characterized, it caused the death of one soldier. 11 to 13 people were hospitalized with it. And that raised alarm signals in 1976 that we were going to deal with another swine flu-like or a flu epidemic like we had in the pandemic of 1918-1919. And so people were mobilized to try and rapidly produce a vaccine. That was also an election year. You may or may not remember, and that was when Jerry Ford was running for his first term, having replaced Nixon following the impeachment against Jimmy Carter, a Georgia native. And so there was Hoopla uh, in the press, in fact, one of the first people who got the vaccine was Jerry Ford, who was the incumbent president. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, two things happened. The first is they, people began to notice a particular side effect called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is where you lose all muscle tone. 
And this appeared to be occurring with greater frequency in people who received the flu uh, vaccine. And the second fact is that that virus never materialized again. Hmm. So that left quite a scar on the population. Now, the other thing about vaccines, there is a very strong movement worldwide to dispute the validity of vaccines. Right. So th- there are, are experiences with flu vaccine in 1976, although it was a long time ago, has colored the arena. What we have now is we have standards in place in terms of the phase three studies that are, have large enough numbers of patients that look at particular immediate and long-term side effects. And those will all be analyzed in a careful manner before it's readily available for larger population use. I can tell you anecdotally that some of the vaccines that we have that people are working on are so-called messenger RNA-based, and that's what the Moderna vaccine is all about. That's what the Pfizer vaccine is all about. That's a two-shot vaccine. You get your first shot on what we call day one, and then three weeks later, you get your second shot. We are currently enrolled in the Moderna uh, phase three trial, and I can tell you that many patients who don't know what they got, but they have noticed that with their second shot, they have experienced some real, some fever, muscle aches, and tiredness for 48 hours after the second injection of that vaccine. Hmm. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a different uh, form of vaccine, uh, where they've used the adenovirus to try and present the appropriate genetic material to against a coronavirus to generate an immune response, that is a one-shot vaccine. And th- there are a few others out there in terms of clinical trials, but we should know the answers to that. The second issue is really mobilization of the vaccine distribution. And I think that you have to put priorities in place, and we know that the people at greatest risk for of coronavirus are elderly people, people with underlying conditions, people who have exposure to that, and that includes all healthcare working you know, workers in a modern hospital, be they physicians, nurses, personnel. So this this all has to be staged. Uh, and frankly, although the doses we will be able to provide billions of doses worldwide, it's going to require a very major, concerted, organized effort to distribute it appropriately. Yes, uh, absolutely. And that, and that is clearly one of the challenges. Rain, you mentioned the different approaches to this vaccine and the likelihood of there right. being several choices ultimately out there at some point. So how will people know which one to take? Look at the analysis. What the analysis does is they will look at, at the vaccine, uh, people who receive vaccine and people who don't, to see what kind of immunity is conferred by the vaccine relative to the control. That is antibody production the ability to manifest what's called a cellular or T-cell response. And we'll take a look at how robust all of those responses are with the different vaccines. And then, obviously, you will look at any potential side effects. These are large clinical trials. There's 30,000 people in the Moderna study, 60,000 people in the uh, Johnson & Johnson study, 45,000 people in the Pfizer study. And that's in America alone. And many of these studies are being done nationally and internationally as well. This is uh, remarkable what we've been able to do in such a short period of time. But having said that, we have to ensure safety. 
when we spoke and sort of in the prep call before this conversation, you gave me a good piece of advice, which is that you often take the flu vaccine, I believe you said in October, and right. you were explaining that right after you take the, the, the flu vaccine, your immunity is at its highest point, but then it ebbs from there. Will a COVID vaccine work the same way? Well, it's something we, we, we don't know yet. What we do know about COVID, and we'll get to this a little bit later, is that one of the therapeutic approaches that people have tried to use is to take plasma that is from people who've had the coronavirus, who have the antibody, and to use it to treat people who have coronavirus. And we'll, we'll get into that a little more. They're now monoclonals, et cetera. But the point of that is that many of these donors have started to volunteer to provide that serum on more than one occasion. And what we're seeing is that the level of antibody that we in those people starts to drop after a few uh, weeks, few months. We don't know if the coronavirus vaccine is going to be like the flu vaccine, which requires that you get an annual dose, or whether it will confer longer-lasting immunity against this particular virus, the coronavirus. Another open question uh, among many here. You just mentioned <laughs> the word uh, monoclonal, and which is a word I would not have known had it not been for the coverage just this week of President Trump coming down with the uh, COVID-19 and, and the various treatments that were administered to him in the hospital. So can you talk about the treatment options that are out there right now and how they may be working or not working? Yeah, okay. First of all, this is very topical because it's in the news every uh, 30 seconds. And that is that basically there are three companies that are trying to use this technique where you can generate specific antibodies that are humanized. That means that they will not be allergic to humans if they're given, mm -hmm. that are directed against the coronavirus to neutralize its ability to grow in a human being. Okay. The one that's receiving the current attention is the Regeneron vaccine, which is basically two monoclonal antibodies that are directed against the coronavirus. And the theory is if you can get that in, you can stop the virus from growing and, and protect the individual so that they can begin to mount the appropriate post-response to the virus. There are two others that are out there. One is Eli Lilly has a monoclonal antibody that they obtained from a small biotech startup company. And GlaxoSmithKline is working with Beer Biotherapeutics on a monoclonal antibody. And those have all gone through phase one, two testing, that is early trials, and are going into phase three testing. So Currently, we have information on 275 people who've gotten the Regeneron, and it looks promising. But they are engaged in a larger uh, clinical trial to show how efficacious it truly is. And these treatments that are in, in still in, in the kind of the test mode, we've been reading about the president receiving them, and obviously the, the doctors treating the president are going to give him anything and everything that is available, when right. these become approved, if they do, will they be readily available to anyone that goes to a hospital? It's, it's going to be very difficult. I think someone put it very well. We look at vaccines to provide immunity to billions. We look at a convalescent uh, serum or monoclonal antibodies to provide treatment for 
millions potentially. These are very difficult to manufacture. These are going to be, uh, I, I think uh, it, it, it's an engineering feat. I think someone should go to the Regeneron website and, and see what they've done in terms of manufacturing capacity to see how enormous a task it is. It's very valuable, but it's an enormous task. So we will play a role. There's no question about it. Uh, I think all of this is going to uh, depend on the availability of, of these compounds. Now, let me other, mention the other thing. Remdesivir has shown that it can have a positive effect. It's not a home run, but it is a treatment. It is not a cure-all. And there were initially five- and seven-day trials. The five-day trial is equivalent to the seven-day trial. It's given five days in a row. And the British did a very extraordinary study because they showed that a very cheap, very powerful steroid called dexamethasone was very valuable in taking care and treating seriously ill patients who were in the hospital in a controlled randomized study. We know that there are different phases of this infection where the virus grows, and then what happens is then the immune system trying to combat that goes crazy and causes all kinds of major alterations in the body, which involves blood clotting and involves heart attacks, strokes, other kinds of side effects from the response of the human being to this virus in an attempt by the, the body to control it. I was just reading an article before this interview as part of my homework, and it was talking about innate versus adaptive immune response, which is, I think, what you're talking about. But it's amazing how yes. the body works to first try to alert the rest of the systems that a disease is there and then sends the reinforcements in, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, basically what, what happens in the body is that the first attempt didn't work, so basically the body goes into a hydrogen bomb approach to try and get rid of it, and at the same time is destructive to the underlying host and to organs within that person. I'm going to use the not very good segue of the term hydrogen bomb to bring this into a geopolitical discussion. And and what I mean by that, Rain, is that, is that I know that Russia and China and others are seeking their own vaccines, as you said previously, and Indeed, some of them are reporting some early success. Can you talk about geopolitics and medicine? Will an eventual vaccine, wherever it comes from, be made globally available, or will it be used more strategically, do you think, by some of these superpowers? Well, you know, I, I think that's an extremely good question. I think what's been extraordinary about medicine and the history of medicine is that people across the world, scientists have collaborated with one another. We recognize nationality, but we recognize that disease prevention treatment is, goes beyond nationality. And what we hope for is we hope for collaboration as much as possible. Now, we, we have limited information on the Russian vaccine. It's an adenovirus vaccine. We believe that it has similarities to, but there are differences about the way those vaccines are made. The Chinese have a similar kind of vaccine. We have not seen a lot of data about those vaccines. We saw one uh, small report in the medical journal Lancet about the Russian experience, but no more than that. We do know, and this is anecdotally, that people are being vaccinated in China and people are being vaccinated in Russia. We don't know the number of people that are enrolled on those trials. We do know on the geopolitical front that 
China and Russia are selling their version of the vaccine to multiple countries around the world. When we chatted ahead of this interview, you raised what I thought was a fascinating and underreported point. You referred to the residua of people who survive COVID and made the point that we've maybe been so focused on incidents and deaths that we may have overlooked the longer-term effects of this disease, even on those people who never showed any symptoms. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. There are several things that uh, we have noticed that have become hallmarks of the disease. But first of all, many people experience loss of taste and loss of smell. Secondly, what we have seen is that people who get it and who have this cascade when the body's regular immune system doesn't work, where you try and destroy it in, in ways that are disruptive to the body. We've seen the formation of blood clots, which leads to heart attacks, strokes, and it's a very difficult problem so that when people are in the hospital, you have to use anticoagulation. The other thing is residual lung damage. And the story you hear, and we don't know the full extent of it, because we don't have follow-up, we don't have large numbers, because we've been focused on incidents and death. Those are people who are basically young people who have been athletic, who have been runners, who two to three months after they recovered from the virus still find it difficult to walk two city blocks. Hmm. So we, we have to see, it's, it's not only death or recovery. What are the side effects that uh, people are left with? For example, you know, the, the whole story of football and the season, etc. We know now that our cardiologists look at MRIs of the heart, and what we notice in people who have not all people, but some people who've had the coronavirus, that there's a, a little swelling of the heart, which may not cause symptoms. We don't know if it's a transient thing, that is, it'll go away, or whether it will leave residual. So all of that is to be determined yet. So I think it's very facile to look at this as a yes, no, you have it, you recover, or you don't. It's more complicated than that. And presumably it could take months or even years to figure that, that kind of it, thing it, out. It could. It, it could. We, we don't know. These are unanswered questions. I'm not trying to raise alarm, but these are issues that we have to take a look at. And we have to take a look at it particularly in young people to see if they're, even though they, the likelihood they'll die is very low, how many are left with transient or permanent side effects from this virus? We don't know those answers yet. <laughs> Well, Rain, I'd, I'd like to end where we began with something maybe a little bit more optimistic. And maybe I'm being idealistic here, but it strikes me that this country has historically attracted some brilliant thinkers who have in so many ways innovated to solve major problems. Your own early theories with bone marrow transplants were once called outlandish, I believe, but now are a critical treatment for many ailments. You've worked with Nobel Prize winners and heroes in medicine. Can you talk about some of the people you've met and worked with who are innovating and pushing the envelope right now? Let me tell you, our profession is, is a marvelous profession. One of the best experiences I had in my life was the three years that I spent at the NIH instead of in Vietnam in the public health service. And there I, I spent three years doing research on a small virus that caused tumor in animals. 
And I was surrounded with some incredibly brilliant people. And what I learned there is how they were able to look at an issue, form questions, create experiments, and come up with the answers. And I remember back in, gosh, this was back in the early 70s, we had a seminar where we had all these brilliant people, members of the National Academy of Science, and some of the best people in the world, talking about what they thought the future of biology would be 30 years hence in the year 2000. And you know what? These were really smart, brilliant people, and they underestimated what we've learned about the human cell, the human body, etc. And, you know, there's something called basic research that is created the platform for the discovery has created the platform for translation into a treatment. One of my roommates in medical school was Peter Salk, Jonas's son, <laughs> who developed the polio vaccine. And it's very clear that both um, Jonas Salk and uh, Albert Sabin did Yeoman's work, but they could not have done that without some of the pioneering work done at Harvard by John Enders, which allowed people to grow viruses in cells. We have studied things that people don't understand, like the fruit fly and the zebrafish, and people complain about money being given to study those. We've learned how their genes work and how they are expressed and what they do. We translated that into an understanding of our own immune system. We've translated that into our understanding of disease. And when you have those discoveries, you can begin to find solutions to a variety of problems, not only coronavirus, cancer, heart disease, et cetera. We're doing that with such rapid speed that this is a remarkable era. And I am very, very convinced that our scientists will continue to push forward the barriers against human disease not only for treatment, but for prevention. So I'm very optimistic. Dr. Sorrell, on behalf of my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, Paula Johnston, and our entire team at Long River Wealth Management, thank you for your innovative spirit, your amazing contribution to medicine, and your time with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it, Paul. Have a good day. You too.